Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, Isaiah chapter 9 is where I'd love for you to open your Bible, and I'm going to bring Todd Cooper back up, and he's going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Maybe you've heard this story about the one-armed French atheist who sold wine and wrote poetry, which I realize kind of sounds like the lead-up to a really bad dad joke, but it's, it's a real story. And even if you don't know the man that I'm referencing, a Frenchman by the last name of Capillo, I'm confident that you'd actually know the song that he's credited for writing. His story emerges out of the 1840s in a humble village in southern France. The boy who had lost one of his arms in a freak accident where one of his young friends as just a boy shot him accidentally, discharged a firearm into his hand, and he lost his arm. That young boy had now grown to be a man, and in the 1840s, he was seated on a train headed towards Paris, and while on that train, he was working meticulously on a piece of poetry. It was a poem that was commissioned by the local priest at a parish in his village who had come to him and asked, could you write something for us to celebrate the renovation of our organ? Because at Christmas time, our plan is to have the organ again be played and this poetry either read or sung together with our church in celebration of that great moment of God's provision for us. The poem would be released and entitled Midnight Christians. 
That poem was so beautiful, it was taken then by that priest to a local composer by the name of Adolf Adam. The composer was no more a Christian than the poem's author, with Adolf being raised in a Jewish household himself. But in 1847, this song would first be sung in a public setting, having been given the simple title of Christmas Carol. In the carol, it was an instant success, with it, it becoming widely popular, people really appreciating it. That is, until word got out about the unlikely authors, an atheist poet with a strong disdain for organized religion, and a Jewish musician who didn't celebrate the birth of Jesus at all. It left some people so outraged that it caused the French church leaders to ban the song from all of their church gatherings. But the French people wouldn't just let it go so easily. And for a time, it would live on in popularity outside the walls of the church in France. In fact, the song were made popular, so popular outside the church that there's even a legend. And who knows if it's really fact or fiction, but I'll tell you, it'll preach. So here you go. That during a lull in battle on Christmas Eve in 1870, in a war between France and Germany, that French troops began singing this Christmas carol together from inside their muddy trenches. Leaving the Germans moved and determined not to be outdone, they then began singing famous hymns written by Martin Luther in response. The two in the end would agree upon a 24-hour truce and ceasefire so that they could each on their own celebrate Christmas together. Now, the plot twist when it comes to the story of this mysterious song that makes it more relevant to you and I as English speakers came when an American musician and minister named John Sullivan Dwight heard the all-but-forgotten Christmas carol, and in 1855, he decided to translate the poem into English, taking a little bit of linguistic and creative liberties along the way, but he would entitle this carol, O Holy Night. I'll read to you some of the lyrics from this familiar carol. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Error pining, we don't use this in our language very often, but it, it, it means a pattern of brokenness. The world is laying in a state of sinfulness, of a pattern of brokenness, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Such a beautiful line telling you that Christmas proclaims the worth of humanity in the eyes of God the Father who'd send his only son. Oh, the thrill of hope the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. You know, our weary world is still rejoicing some 2,000 years later with billions around the globe who have remembered and celebrated the wonder of Christmas throughout the ages. And for many, especially in the, the Western Hemisphere, this modern celebration of Christmas that many of us are more familiar with, we find that Christmas oftentimes feels more stressful than joyous. As much as I love Christmas, I'm able to see, and I personally am willing to admit, that there's a pattern that we seem to tend to fall into during the Christmas season, where we find ourselves spending more, consuming more, even eating more, and doing much more in December than in any other month of the year. And for that reason, Christmas can all of a sudden become really the least physically, emotionally, financially, and even spiritually season that we have all year long. 
And I believe that it doesn't need to be that way. In fact, I believe as a follower of Jesus that we're meant to resist the world's broken patterns, even if broken patterns surround the observance and celebration of Christmas, the birth of Christ himself. Now, before you stop me and call me the Grinch or Scrooge, I do want you to know, I, all I'm admitting to you is that Jesus can get squeezed out of Christmas very easily, even in my own heart. And that today, I just want to echo the words of another familiar Christmas carol, where it says, let every heart prepare him room. That's what we want to do together as a church, as we're stepping towards the celebration of the arrival of Jesus. Because it's true for so many of us that our modern observance of Christmas can feel more stressful than joyous. Again, I'm not dogging the decor, the music, or the gifts. Full disclosure, uh, to my chagrin, but my wife's great joy, our tree was up before Thanksgiving even happened this year, which I realize is like a cardinal sin, may even be the unforgivable sin. And if you drove by our house tonight, you would even see a Star Wars Christmas extravaganza on our front lawn. So I'm not dogging any of that. As fun as it all is, though, our modern way of observing and celebrating Christmas is actually a relatively new phenomenon that's really only a part of the last 150 years of of tradition and history. For much longer than that, some 1,500 years, Jesus followers across really every tradition of the world have set aside the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day as a meaningful season of hope-filled anticipation that the church has long called Advent. It's about reflecting on the world's brokenness and our deep need for a savior. It's about stepping into the shoes of the ancient Israelites who are longing for the arrival of Messiah. It's about looking ahead and longing for also the day when Jesus will return to make things right again. Well, what's Advent? Advent, it's just a Latin word, Adventus, that simply means coming or arrival. You see, Advent is this long celebration throughout church history that's the traditional celebration of the first coming, the first Advent, arrival of Jesus, where Jesus comes in humility. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. And it's simultaneously the eager expectation of his second Advent, his second coming, where he comes not in humility, but in glory. And for many of us, at least for myself, who grew up in a Western evangelical setting, Advent season for me was largely unfamiliar and even, you could say, totally foreign for me growing up inside the church. I was much more accustomed to Christmas in its kind of modern commercialized form that's a ton of fun, yes, but it's admittedly, if we're honest, it's wrapped up in individualism and consumerism, which is such an ironic way to celebrate the self-giving, self-emptying love of God, which is what Christmas is all about in the end. You see, over the centuries, followers of Jesus around the globe have paused together to do this, to observe Advent, the anticipation of Jesus' arrival for this reason. This is why the church has always done this, because it makes the arrival of Christmas Day that much more of a breathtaking and meaningful celebration. And so this is why we as a church, we're pausing now alongside of millions of other saints around the globe, alongside of billions of other saints throughout the ages to celebrate and observe the season of Advent together. And the goal for us is that we come together each Sunday for the next couple of weeks in celebration of Jesus' first Advent, but also remembering that we live in anticipation of a second coming of Jesus. You see, Advent's meant to allow us to feel the brokenness and tension 
of trusting and waiting on a good God while we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world, while we face a broken existence. It's the longing ancient Israel had, awaiting the Messiah, yes, who came in humility. It's the longing all creation still today has, waiting for the return of Jesus in his glory to set things right. You know, in the end, it it really... It doesn't matter so much how we celebrate. What matters much more is what we celebrate. And the goal for us in the next couple of weeks is for us to slow down to remember exactly that, to remember what we celebrate together. So as a church family for these next few weeks, what we'll do is we'll read from Scripture at the beginning of our gathering like we did this morning. If you were here, I hope that you were. If you weren't, I hope you will be next week in time to be a part of it where we'll read from Scripture and light a candle to remember the hope and the joy, the peace and the love that Jesus, the light of the world, has given to us. And then what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the titles, the names, as we just sung about the beautiful name of Jesus. We're going to look at the names that Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the titles that the prophet would ascribe to the, to the one who is heaven sent one who would bring the dawn of the new and glorious morn. We'll look at those titles one after another. So take your attention back to Isaiah chapter 9. You see, some 700 years before the promised deliverer of humanity would arrive on the scene, the prophet Isaiah here is addressing a nation who'd live under the grim, dark reality of captivity. And what he prophesies then to them, as God begins to speak through him, includes both moments of hope and also imagery that was horrifying. What he prophesies is both hopeful and horrifying. His look at the future, it would often be bleak because of the reality of a life in a broken world where they would find themselves under the thumb of another twisted leader. This was a horrifying reality for the people. However, the other thing that he would prophesy also is that he would also write with a confident hope and a promised future where one would come to take all of creation back all the way to the Garden of Eden itself. All of creation would experience peace without end. If you look in Isaiah 7, you can just turn one page to the left. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet speaks to the king of Judah, and he's promising, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally is translated God with us. He's prophesying that there's a miracle child coming. A virgin will conceive. And when she does, the one who will emerge from that family and home, from her womb, will be the one that you will begin to recognize as God among us. Isaiah then prophetically revisits that imagery and promise of a miracle child arriving who'd be God among us. This time in chapter 9, he begins to tell you with clarity what he's coming to do. Again, look at chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Children are born every day. Children are born even every hour, but a son being given is so very different. This is the fulfillment of a promise that comes from the Garden of Eden itself when God would promise that her seed would crush the enemy's rebellion. But the woman doesn't have a seed. She has an egg. It's a comment there, a foreshadowing of a miraculous conception of a miracle child. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, will perform this. What is the this miracle child, what is it that he, God among us, Emmanuel, what is he coming to do for us? Isaiah answers it. He's coming to take authority, the authority to govern the world again, and in doing so, to set up and establish an ever-expanding, unending reign, it says here, of global peace. But the real question is, but how will he do it? And this time you'll have to skip much further over to the right because he will answer, the prophet will, how he will do just this. And it's found in Isaiah 53. And this is where the hope and the whore, everything that is hopeful about what he prophesies and everything that was horrific and horrifying, somehow in this prophecy would inexplicably intersect. Isaiah 53 reads this way. Oh, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his day. Do you see here the hint and promise of resurrection? All the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Think of this, a crucified man could not see the fruit of his labor, labor, but a risen Savior could. Again, verse 11, by this or his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Oh, this is the prophet answering the question of how. But how will Messiah make peace again? How will he usher in a reign of peace? This is where the hope and horror, all that was hopeful and all that was horrific about what he would prophesy would somehow inexplicably intersect. 
Again, as it begins in Isaiah 53, oh, who would believe this? Who would believe our report that the one we'd know as Emmanuel, God with us, would make peace a possibility for all of humanity, for all of creation, even by giving himself as a substitute and sacrifice. And one day that lamb will return this time as a lion and he will make peace, not just a possibility. He makes it a reality for all of creation by reigning now as judge and king. Oh, who would believe that? The prophet would say in chapter 53, verse 1. Or as he would say here in chapter 9. Oh, the wonder of it all. You see, some of your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, they give five different titles to the one who's promised to come. And it gets a bit confusing because the ancient Hebrew language would leave some discrepancy here because there wasn't much in the way of punctuation in ancient Hebrew language. And so it left it then to... English translators in your modern Bible to make a decision what he was saying here and how many titles are given. And that's why if you're an ESV reader or NIV, you see four titles there. If you have a New King James, you'll see uh, five commas that then make for five different titles. Or some scholars look at this ancient Hebrew prophetic passage and what they translate here and emphasize is this. That they say that Isaiah is promising that he, the one who's coming, will forever be revealed and be called a wonder, a miracle, a glorious gift, because you'll find him to be the great counselor. He's a wonder because you'll find him to be also our almighty God. He's a wonder because he is also the everlasting father. Oh, he's a wonder because he is the prince of peace. And that's why we're entitling our little Christmas series, The Wonder of Christmas, looking at these names and titles that Isaiah said, make the one we know as Emmanuel, God with us, they make him so very wonderful. And the first one we look at today is just that first title where it says that he is our wonderful counselor. And I'll tell you, I I know and am aware that I just took a long time to get to where we are. So don't worry, we won't be here too long. I needed to set up this series as a whole. So after a lengthy introduction, I want to spend a few minutes with you talking about the idea of Jesus, our wonderful counselor. And this is not just who he is to creation. I believe that this is who he wants to be for you. You see, he is the wonderful counselor because of who he is, what he was willing to do, and and what he would then become because of what he was willing to do. Okay, think this through with me. Miss Ruth, if you don't mind throwing this quotation up there. He's the wonderful counselor because of who he is, what he was willing to do, and what he would then become. We're going to work our way through this as three separate thoughts. The first is this, Jesus, our wonderful counselor, is that he is a wonderful counselor because of who he is. You see, our reality is really not so different from the context and the people from the era that Isaiah is writing to, the people that he's initially addressing as his audience. Because we too, we live under the suppression of an evil tyrant. And I'm not referencing a political party or your governor or any other form of government. I'm not even wanting your mind to go back to your frustration about a COVID era and how things are navigated. No, not at all. Because you and I, as a follower of Jesus, we don't have a long list of enemies. We have one enemy, and he's the lying deceiver who started the whole mess by launching a rebellion at the dawn of creation. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that says it this way that we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. 
You see, our reality is not so very different from the situation that Isaiah's initial audience lived in. We too find ourselves in a world and life that's marred by brokenness and that's marked by darkness. We too are waiting for and needing a light in the darkness. We need a savior and king to bring peace. We say it here often that we live in the tension of the now and the not yet. Because Jesus was very clear that the kingdom of God is now here, he would say. It's, it's close enough you can reach out and touch it. It's now here and that you can experience it because where Jesus is the king, his kingdom is there. So in your life personally, you're experiencing the reality of being a member of his kingdom. It's now here and yet still coming. There's a future thing we're still waiting for, the day where Christ returns. Yes, as judge and king, we're waiting for that second advent. Yes, the first advent would bring his kingdom in the hearts of his people, but his second advent, his second arrival will bring it for all of the world, for all of creation. You see, he's our wonderful counselor because of who he is. And this title, it can really translate, he is a wonder of a counselor. The adjective wonderful here refers to actions that are beyond the bounds of human power and can be translated as he's an astonishment. He's an amazement. He's extraordinary. In Judges 13, the same Hebrew word shows up and it's described or it's translated as incomprehensible or beyond understanding. That's who he is. It's Psalm 118 where it's talking the psalmist even prophetically about a moment that will happen in history a thousand years before Jesus will arrive. But that moment that he's writing of about the stone that the builders rejected as they're building the house of God becomes the chief cornerstone. The imagery there, it says that this was marvelous, wonderful. This is incomprehensible, is what they say. It's that Hebrew word. The imagery was that Jesus would be the one that God's, that God's whole work would be built upon, but that Jesus would be inspected and rejected by the system and by the leaders of the religious system who are meant to draw people close to God. They would look at him and reject him completely. Bible scholars are really quick to point out when it uses this term that Jesus is the, the wonder, that Emmanuel, God with us, he's, he's miraculous, that this is a clear claim to deity. They're pointing out to you that he's a wonder, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the miracle gift to all of humanity. And then when you couple that with this idea of a counselor, this is an Old Testament word that's used again and again to describe those who would assist a young king who would come to power. They would function as advisors to him, these counselors, giving him the opportunity, if he chose humility, to glean wisdom from their experience and to begin to see the world through their paradigm rather than his own. Think of this, Jesus, our wonderful counselor. This is exactly who he is. Jesus would arrive as heaven's miracle of mercy walking among us, and he would come with a whole new paradigm for life. He's not just some helpful therapist, although a good therapist can be helpful. He's not just a good listener and advice giver. It's saying he's so much more than that. Jesus' contemporaries, you remember in the Gospels, they would marvel at his authority and the wisdom with which he spoke. They'd marvel saying no one else speaks and teaches like Jesus. And what he introduced to humanity was so very foreign. You see, because ever since humanity first enthroned self in place of God, our world has been subject to a broken set of principles. I mean, think about this with me. Our world is built upon unchanging principles throughout all of human history. Yes, the rulers have changed, but the rules have always remained the same. 
that empires and leaders may rise and fall, but a new regime takes their place rising to power through the same use of exploitation and aggression and suppression. The world is built throughout all of human history on a broken system, a hierarchy of principles, where greatness is then defined as power. Greatness is defined as comfort, as success and superiority, as reputation and the admiration of others. We could call that the right side up kingdom because it pays off, you could say. It pays off that these things work in our world so it makes it seem like it's absolutely natural to live this way. And if we're honest, if the now is all that there is, then it does make sense. If the now, the present, is all that we have, then this kingdom's principles make sense to live by, even if it means crushing others around us. But the crazy thing is those things all disintegrate. Not just in heaven, but here, even in our future on earth. These things do not give lasting satisfaction. It's your beauty that's disintegrating. You'll not always be the most beautiful person in the room. It's your achievements that are disintegrating. Someone else will end up having their name on the desk or plaque behind you. It's your influence that's disintegrating. People's admiration of you is disintegrating. Their attention will be drawn somewhere else, and you're starting the process all over again. But Jesus arrives with a whole new paradigm for life teaching that blessed are the poor and the meek and that the greatest of all is the one who's willing to be servant of all. <laughs> but in the right side up kingdom that you and I find ourselves in, who would value service and weakness and selflessness? Because it's occupational suicide. It'll bring about a slow and painful death to my career climb up the ladder. It's a death to my own need for adoration. If I live this way, it's going to keep me from reaching the top and from finally kicking back. And I thought that that was the goal anyways. But if the now is not all that there is, Jesus invites us into an upside down kingdom where there's a reversal of the values of this current administration system. And if you're truly a follower of Jesus and a member of his upside-down kingdom, then we'll cherish and value self-sacrifice over self-absorption. We'll cherish and value meekness and humility over success and superiority. We'll cherish and value mercy and peace, vulnerability and love over reputation and admiration because we cherish Jesus over ourselves. We do not reside in his upside-down kingdom simply by choosing to value a system. We reside in that upside-down kingdom when we choose to value and cherish a person, Jesus himself. My friends, there is much more than just the now. There's the past that shows us all that was lost. But there's also the future that shows us what will be restored. It's what we long for and wait for. It's what our season of Advent's meant to cause us to pause and remember the tension we live in, that we're waiting for a second Advent, a second arrival of Jesus. He is our wonderful counselor because of who he is. That he'd come and give us a whole new paradigm for life, establishing a way out of the world's broken system and my sinful, broken, fallen state. He's also, though, a wonderful counselor because of what he was willing to do. What he was willing to do, that he was willing to suffer like us and in our place. Okay, now think back again, Isaiah's time frame. Soon the people would go back to their homeland. Soon the people in Isaiah's day, they would rebuild the temple itself. 
But the ultimate and final fulfillment of what God was promising his people would be delayed by some 700 years. We read earlier how Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins to describe how God will rescue creation and reclaim his throne. He will do it through his personal suffering as a substitute. Isaiah 53 describes him as a lamb that was slaughtered. You see, the cross of Jesus becomes the enthronement of a new king, the rightful king over all of the earth. Well, they'll place a royal robe on his shoulders, mocking him, and then beat a crown of thorns into place on his head, where they'll place an inscription over him, here is the king. And finally, they will lift him up, not on a throne, but instead on a cross, as Jesus would say in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, for Christ to rescue us and to begin again the reign of God, the kingdom of God on the earth, Jesus would stand up and look at his friends and say, I must suffer. And Christ would establish his kingdom just like every other person in history did, with a violent demonstration and bloodshed. But Jesus would do it in such a way that no one else had ever done it before, because he would not shed the blood of others. He would instead establish his kingdom with the shedding of his own blood. It's Isaiah 9-7, where it talks about how he will be the final king whose reign would result in an increasing peace forever, where most governments would increase their influence through violence, would increase the expansion of their empire through acts of war. It says that this one will be so different because it will be an act and demonstration of peace that spreads it, that the spreading of his kingdom and empire and movement will be on the shoulders of peace and the government that he brings. See, he's our wonderful counselor because this is who he is. He's our wonderful counselor because this is what he was willing to do, to suffer like us and in our place. But hear me, please, this is the other piece of this, that Jesus, the third thing, is our wonderful counselor because of what he'd then become. Because, yes, this is who he is, and then look what he'd do, but because he'd lovingly do what he did, look for a moment at what he would then become. Yes, Jesus is my substitute, but he's more than that. By becoming your substitute in mine, he then became our friend. He then became our brother. He then became our perfect high priest, is what Scripture says. I mean, you should know the humanity of Jesus enables him to relate to us in an incredibly powerful way. In Hebrews chapter 4, it it depicts him and, and compares him to a high priest. And the high priest's job, one man's job in all of the nation of Israel, was to represent God to man, bridging the gap between the two and simultaneously to represent man before God. That was the job of the high priest. And this is precisely what Jesus, the God-man, would do. It's where in Scripture, in 1 Timothy, it says that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ himself, who on a cross would be uniting God with man, man with God. This is the position that Jesus would take. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 reads it this way in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize To suffer with us is the actual translation of this. To suffer with our weaknesses. For we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He now sympathizes with my every weakness. You know, it's funny, in our modern culture, we can tell someone, 
you have my sympathy. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they have my attention or care. It doesn't mean that I'm motivated even to do something. We can think of it as an empty feeling even that, oh, I'm so sorry going through that. You have my sympathy. It almost seems disconnected in moments from real action or actual care. But that's not what it's saying here of Jesus. It's not what's being communicated. It's saying that that Jesus shudders with us, that he cares deeply for us, so deeply that he would be driven into action to rescue us. You see, only a human could sympathize and suffer with our human weakness and temptation. And Jesus as a human was subjected, subjected to all the same hurts and trials and temptations that, that we are. He was tempted and persecuted. He was betrayed. He was poor and without a home. He was despised and abandoned. He was misunderstood and would be rejected. He'd suffer physical pain and endure the sorrows of an incredibly cruel death and even felt the shame connected to my sinfulness. Only a human being could experience these things and only a human being could fully understand them through that experience. See, this is where he is our wonderful counselor because of who he is, yes, but also because of what he was willing to do and then because of what he was willing to do, what he would then become for me. What he'd become for us as a sympathetic high priest because of his willingness to do something for us because he became breakable and broken for us. I now have, scripture says, an advocate with the Father who understands my hurts and who intercedes on my behalf, who comes to comfort me in my brokenness because he knows what it's like to be broken. You see, we're confident that, confident that Jesus knows our weakness, not because he's God and just knows everything, but because God himself became acquainted with our weaknesses, because God chose to walk in our shoes. You see, if you've ever felt frustrated or questioned God's connection to your feelings, the pressures you face, the pain that you endure, then may I remind you today that our perception of God, of of how he thinks and what he feels, dramatically changes because of who Jesus is and what Jesus was willing to do. You see, Christmas points us towards a cross, doesn't it? And that cross takes the God that the prophet Isaiah would tell us was big enough to measure the universe and the span of his hands, the God that I needed to be big enough to measure the universe and the span of his hands, so very powerful, and makes him simultaneously small enough to place his arm around us when we too are pressed and crushed and gently whisper to us, I understand. See, when Jesus came at his first advent, he became the visible expression of invisible God, what we read from Colossians at the beginning of our gathering. But when Jesus suffered, he not only paved the way for me to be forgiven and accepted by God, he also proved that he understands me and draws near me in my pain. He became my wonderful counselor, my great high priest and friend, my advocate in the presence of the Father. Do you see that this is personal? Do you see that the one that they are prophesying and promising here would be Emmanuel, God with us, who would come through miraculous means, that he would be one who would become so personal and intimately connected to you, your wonderful counselor. I'll just tell you, this is a beautiful gift and reminder, at least it has been for me this week, because I can look at and experience all of the world's brokenness. 
For me, I can look at people that I care for and I'm watching their health deteriorate. And that, that can be such a difficult thing to watch. It's, it's me sitting with my kids this week one night and answering their questions after hearing a conversation at their school and then even watching the World Cup where they start to talk about what reality is for people in other places in the world. As they start to ask questions about why would that army be knocking out power grids so that people are sitting in, in the dark and in the cold in the winter? Why are people like this? Dad, how is this right or fair? It's so good for me to know that Jesus understands and cared enough to do something about the brokenness that I'm up against. He went to a cross. There's a first advent, but he also cares enough to have a second advent that's coming where he comes to make the world right again. We need to land this plane quickly. You know, Isaiah penned these words some 700 years before Jesus would arrive. 300 years after Isaiah was there, the final of the prophets to the people of God would arrive. His name is Malachi. And then there would be 400 years of silence and waiting. Generations of waiting. Think about that. Waiting and longing in tension. Waiting and longing in pain. They're not comfortable in that stretch of waiting. It's not a time marked by leisure. It was a battle for faith while waiting in oppression and discomfort. But God was preparing to speak his greatest and most powerful word to mankind. Jesus, the word made flesh, would arrive. There was this pause, a long, distinct pause that would add emphasis to that monumental revelation that there in a humble manger, God himself would arrive. Atop a bed of straw in a feeding trough laid the fulfillment of God's promise from the garden itself. And this morning, yes, we remember the, the miracle of hope breaking through in the incarnation. When the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us as a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger who would then later find himself wrapped in another linen cloth and laid in a tomb only to emerge alive again out of the grave. Yes, today we remember that hope broke through at that first advent, that first coming. But today we also are meant to long for something. See, our expectation and waiting intention is wrapped up in the second coming, the second advent or arrival of Jesus. But our waiting, please hear me, our waiting with expectation and certainty is because we have a resurrected Savior who Scripture refers to as our living hope. And that living hope has proven that nothing will stop him from fulfilling his promises. Not sin or Satan, not sorrow or pain, not a cross or a grave, nothing will stop him from fulfilling his promises. You see, the purpose of this season, this time of year, where the church around the globe is pausing for a moment together, is to turn our minds to what first happened at that first coming of Jesus, but also to awaken our hearts to the hope of what will happen at Jesus' second coming. Come quickly, we say, Lord Jesus. Jesus, that is our prayer. Come quickly. Jesus, we're so thankful you have not left us orphans. You have not abandoned us. 
You've been faithful to us, and you've revealed yourself to us as intimate and near, as a friend, a confidant, a brother, an advocate, a high priest who understands our weakness and sits with us in our pain, who advocates for us in our weakness, who comforts us and gives us peace. Jesus, I'm thankful that you are near to us. It's what we celebrate. But we're also thankful for the reminder that you will not be for long far from us. That even though you are near us by your Spirit, soon we believe the day is coming where you will be here with us. For Jesus, you make the world right again. Where there is peace that begins to expand across all of creation. Jesus, our hearts are awakened today by the reminder that this world is not our home, but it also is not a forever dwelling. That you'll make the world right again. And so, Jesus, we look forward with hopeful anticipation to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.